institutions, all institutions in America has been shaken. I mean, in the aftermath of Flint, like, people all around the country don't trust their water anymore. They're switching to bottled water or filters, and this loss of trust, modern society works on trust. If you can't trust the EPA, if you can't trust the environmental policemen, we have anarchy, and we're on the verge of that right now, so... We know workers, women, immigrants, and people of color are under attack. But I know as I look out on this crowd that when we fight, we win. 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 What do you want? The contract. When do you want it? Now. What do you want? The contract. When do you want it? Now. What do you want? The contract. When do you want it? Now. What do you want? The contract. When do you want it? Now. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And on today's show, from D.C. to Flint, Michigan to the Grand Canyon, access to safe water is being threatened by lead contamination, corporate polluters, the bottled water industry, and fracking. We will speak to the scientists who helped to expose the lead crises in Flint, Michigan, and in Washington, D.C. Yes, Washington, D.C. And across the nation. Professor Mark Edwards of Virginia Tech University joins us for an in-depth conversation that you won't want to miss. Also, Native Americans living in the Grand Canyon are in D.C. to stop uranium mining from poisoning their water and land. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. Longtime residents of the Congress Heights apartments in Southeast D.C. who have been organizing for improved living conditions and against displacement received a boost of community support on February 10th when dozens joined them in a march to the home of developer Jeff Griffiths in the wealthy D.C. neighborhood of Cleveland Park. Chantel James has more. A passionate and diverse crowd of concerned DMV residents braved the rain over the past weekend in response to 1DC's call for a protest against slumlord Jeff Griffiths' policies of leaving tenants in Congress Heights properties in inhumane living conditions before a march, protesters gathered for a rally where organizer Eugene Perrier put Griffiths and his partner Sanford Capital in the context of citywide issues like gentrification. We live in a district of Columbia that has seen an unbelievable amount of gentrification, of displacement. I would really call it violence against many of our long-term residents, forced from their homes, forced from their neighborhood, forced from their way of life by people like Jeff Griffiths. And the way that they get away with so much is they let the subcontractors take the heat. They let the politicians take the heat. Per year, challenged Griffiths and his allies to make changes that will allow all D.C. residents to live lives of dignity in homes from which they will not be forcibly displaced. This is Chantel James for On the Ground, signing off. Thank you, Chantel. 
Now, also rallying for labor rights, caregivers and dietary workers at George Washington University Hospital walked out on Wednesday, February 14th to protest working for more than a year without a contract and the attempt by the hospital to disrupt their membership in Local 1199 of the Service Employees International Union. Lisa Brown, Executive Vice President of the Maryland, D.C. region of 1199, on hand at the rally, said that the failure of the hospital corporation to negotiate with workers and its attempt at union busting is occurring in the political climate set by Donald Trump. George Washington University Hospital is University Healthcare Systems, which is one of the major healthcare systems in the nation. It's a major corporation. And we need to encourage all workers to, you know, fight against bosses that are trying to roll them back and not pay them and treat them as if they don't count, as if they're expendable. And so we want UHS to come to the table with a fair contract and we're prepared to settle a fair contract. Brown added that the GWU hospital workers were close to settling an agreement on the estimated $80,000 in back pay owed to them by the hospital. Coming up, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival, is holding a D.C. mass meeting on Monday, February 19th, 7 p.m. at Shiloh Baptist Church, 1509th Street in Northwest D.C., the national campaign marking the 50th anniversary of the original Poor People's Campaign envisioned by the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. plans to confront elected officials and engage in acts of peaceful civil disobedience around the country to highlight the human impact of policies that promote systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, and ecological devastation. Also coming up is the 60th anniversary of the historic 1958 All-African People's Conference held in Accra, Ghana, and that's being marked on Saturday, February 17th, 3 to 5 p.m. at the Festival Center, 1640 Columbia Road in Northwest D.C. Speakers include Maurice Carney, Director of Friends of the Congo, and Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. The 1958 conference was the major first Pan-African gathering organized on African soil, and the theme was Hands Off Africa. Organizers for this anniversary, which is actually being celebrated in many countries, say that they are calling on the global African family to continue to fight for a free, liberated, and self-determined Africa. And an update on a story we brought you last October. Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief for The Intercept, joined us then and talked to us about dozens of children dying in the custody of for-profit foster care homes that are funded with our tax dollars and pending federal legislation that could be a remedy. Well, that legislation, the Family First Prevention Services Act, is now law. Grimm just co-authored an article in The Intercept pointing out that the act was tucked quietly into the most recent congressional measure to keep the government open and that it is the most sweeping and ambitious piece of child welfare legislation passed in at least a decade. According to the article, the new legislation overcame the opposition of group homes, which pocket thousands of dollars per month for each child warehoused in their custody. It upends the funding structure for the child welfare system by allowing states to use federal matching funds for programs addressing mental health, substance abuse, family counseling, and parent skills training to keep at-risk children from entering the foster care system in the first place. 
It's meant to help keep families together. It's one bright spot in an otherwise cruel legislative landscape rife with harm to people and the environment and rich with rewards to the Pentagon and military contractors. In culture and media, the organizers of Black Youth Project 100 are exploring the links between arts and activism. Chantel James has more. BYP 100, a collective with chapters across the country that fights for Black liberation, broke new ground in April 2017 with the release of their zine Melanation. Now they're releasing their third issue, and a release party was held at Phantom Comics, a comic book store in DuPont Circle, the second Saturday of this February. The theme of this issue is family, broadly defined. We spoke with founder Jordan Belouche about BYP 100's aims with Melanation and the journey to build a community around it so far. Um, so Melanation is an art zine by activists at BYP 100 DC. Uh, BYP 100 stands for Black Youth Project 100. And uh, what we do is we're a collective of black activists with chapters across the country that fight for black liberation. Um, and so BYP 100 DC started this zine um, as a part of an effort to uplift the perspectives of local black artists and writers and really create a world where, a creative world, where we can all be imaginative and explore what liberation could look like in different facets of our lives. Um, and we really believe in the power of creativity to really push forward some of these ideals of a black queer feminist world that we see. Uh, so yeah, so today is the release of the third issue. Um, the theme is family. And so it, we're selling issues of our first, second, and third zines. A bunch of contributors from the issues are here. We're also going to have some performers uh, from in the D.C. area. Cool. So how often does the zine come out? We call it an approximate quarterly schedule because, you know, things happen <laughs> and we're all doing this for free and putting things together. Uh, so we launched in April 2017 and thus far we put out three zines. We're hoping to release our next issue sometime in the summer. Great. And so are you finding that kind of a community is building up around uh, what you guys have been trying to do with this? Yeah. And that you're getting a lot of support from people? Yeah, definitely. Like, so the idea of Melanation is really to be a creative collective space, like created by the collective. And so that's a uh, Represented by all the different contributors, the diversity of contributors and the issues, and also by like when we are able to hold events, uh, the different people who are so engaged and decide to you know engage with us, like Phantom Comics, uh, where we're having the event. Um, but we also, outside of the zine, we also have a blog uh, where different uh, people contribute. And what is the, the URL of your blog? Yeah, it's melanationzine.com. Uh, and so if you go there, you'll see different uh, blog posts about the different activism that's happening in DC and across the country. The release party featured a raffle to a free showing of Black Panther, as well as performances by contributors to Melanation. From DuPont Circle, this is Chantal James. Thank you again, Chantal. And finally, in culture and media, the days for pre-hype are over and the highly anticipated movie The Black Panther is in theaters. Now, as a moviegoer, who is not a comic book or superhero nerd, I felt that there was still the Afro-techno-futurism-as-now spectacle to enjoy. And in my case, I also enjoyed my theater audience engaging the spectacle. Ooh, the first appearance of Angela Bassett as the queen we know she is. The hidden and highly sophisticated African kingdom of Wakanda is the place for this spectacle. 
thanks to a super mineral vibranium that landed in their region in prehistoric times that powers everything from levitating trains to a saber-tooth-style necklace worthy of an African superhero. But as the story goes, Wakanda's special natural resources do not make it immune from discord, and the Black Panther, who is the first superhero that I've seen who doubles as royalty, the King Takala, must fight to save his kingdom. Chad Bozeman as Takala has the right combination of dignified reserve and fight ferocity that we have come to expect of our movie kings, as the movie juggles very relevant ideas such as pan-Africanism, monarchy, and the possibility of being a global superpower, the African diaspora is really not a factor. And I honestly feel that African Americans, though emulated the world over for our struggle for human rights, were sort of thrown under the character bus in service to this fantasy African ideal of superpowers and respectability. But this is a comic book movie, and I still enjoy The Black Panther. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Mark Edwards on the two worlds of water in the United States. Stay with us. Just tuning in. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm your host, Esther Averam. And my guest today is Mark Edwards, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Virginia Tech University. In 2014, he and his team helped expose the crisis of lead contaminated water in Flint, Michigan, which poisoned a generation of children in that city led to the indictments of 15 civil servants and prompted a closer examination of dozens of other municipalities across the country with similar or worse water hazards. But lesser known is that a decade before, Edwards exposed a problem 30 times worse existing right here in D.C., in the nation's capital. He argues that there are two systems of drinking water in the United States, one for communities with modern pipes and infrastructure or the money for repairs, and another system for everyone else. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Edwards. Glad to be here. Well, even those of us who have lived in D.C. in the nation's capital for decades may not know that there are big links between the water catastrophe in Flint, Michigan, and Washington, D.C., and that maybe one of the biggest links between the two is is you personally. So let's start with that and, and what happened here in D.C., Well, I think one of the main links is that 
They were both a betrayal of government agencies in terms of exposing residents to high lead and water, contrary to federal law, and not telling them. And in both cases, it was moms and dads who really figured out that their children were getting elevated blood lead from the water and uh, trying to piece all this together. And eventually, we came in in both cases for different reasons and showed that they were right. And in large part because the Washington, D.C. lead crisis, which most people don't know, was 30 times worse, at least, in terms of exposure and harm to kids in Washington, D.C., because it got covered up in 2004 completely, and it wasn't until 2010 that people realized that they had the wool pulled over their eyes and thousands of children had their blood lead elevated. Uh, it, it really never got the attention in real time that Flint did because by the time we figured out the harm was done, good luck holding people accountable or getting funding to help those children uh, in D.C. who really had special education needs and their families had additional expenses and they, they really got the shaft. They never got a penny. Wow. So just take us through what happened here in D.C. Uh, how did the lead get in the water? Well, it started out with good intentions. They were trying to improve the drinking water quality, and I think they succeeded in the narrow respect of reducing disinfection byproducts. So this is late 2001, and they made the switch from chlorine to chloramine, and they, they did successfully meet the new EPA regulations at that time, but no one knew, go figure, 100 years experience, we, we've had lead pipes in the ground, we've been using chlorine. No one knew that chlorine was keeping lead on the pipe and out of the water. So when the chlorine stopped being added to the water, only a few people had predicted this, but the lead just started to fall off. And within a few weeks, the D.C. Water and Sewer Authority had detected these high lead levels and Rather than report them to the EPA and alert people to the danger, they, they hid the results. They covered them up, and that started a three-year cover-up where people were being told their water was safe when it was not, and that's all contrary to federal law. And eventually this got exposed through good reporting at the Washington Post and the detective work of moms and dads, like I said, figuring out their kids were getting lead poison from water. and. People went crazy in 2004. They were very, very angry. It's one of the biggest news stories of the year. But the agencies who caused the problem came in and, you know, covered it up and claimed no one got hurt. And that was the message that stood up until about 2009 when we showed that just like we've known for 2,000 years of human history, when people drink too much lead in their water, they get lead poison. So this goes back to the Roman days. And the folks in D.C. were no different, after all, than any other human on the planet. And it was just these agencies using science to first deceive people to try to cover up the problem and then cover up the harm done, and they almost got away with it. Well, in a way, maybe they personally did get away with it. I don't remember anyone going to jail. For no, you're absolutely right, and that's so important, because no one, no one that perpetrated that crime was held accountable, and in fact... That's one of the reasons that we knew the D.C. lead crisis would be repeated, and that's why we were ready when it happened in Flint in 2014-2015. If you don't learn from your mistakes, you're going to repeat them. So give me some examples of how parents here knew that there was a problem and blew the whistle. 
Well, the most powerful scientific force in the universe is a mom and dad trying to figure out why their child is hurt, why they're sick. And several children in D.C. were having um, developmental issues. Uh, moms and dads figured out they had too much lead in their blood. In several cases, they tried to do the standard remedial measures, which is to fix the paint or dust in the home. And in many cases, the blood lead kept rising. In one case, so high, the child had to be hospitalized. And so everyone was believing the line that lead in water is not an issue because that's what the water company and EPA were saying. And that threw parents off the trail for quite some time and their doctors. But eventually, few of them figured out, hey, I've got high lead in my water. Why aren't people being told about this? And, you know, that was all a prelude to it the great investigative reporting in the Washington Post, which created the D.C. lead crisis, and there were seven congressional hearings on this. I mean, it was President Bush was asked if he was drinking too much lead in the White House water. There was high lead in the Congress. And so this is, you know, this is affecting our most powerful people in our most powerful city. And uh, unfortunately, the agencies that caused this problem fooled everyone and claimed no one got hurt. Well, you know... I'm a mom, and I was actually living here in D.C. through this crisis with a young child. And uh, I remember very clearly these things happening. You know, I was working. They left me some bottles. <laughs> they just left me some bottles at my house and said to return these some kind of way. And, you know, it was just like not something I even had time to do, right? Right. But eventually they gave me some water filters and, you know, actually had before I... When I first moved here in 95, I had to actually put in a filter in my house. Anyway. Was anyway. that in D.C.? Yes. Yeah, that was the time of the first lead and water drinking water crisis in D.C. It was the late 80s, the 90s. Yeah. So okay. D.C. So, been through two great water crises of related to lead. So I had already put in a filter, but... Then I just started filtering the water that was already filtered. I figured it can't hurt, you know? Some filters don't remove the lead either. So maybe the first one did, maybe it didn't. It depends on what what type it was. Exactly. So, but the other piece to this is that I remember years later uh, when um, I think my, my health insurance situation was a little better and I wanted to ask the pediatrician, well, we've gone through this, you know, water crisis and I've filtered my water, but can you test my son for lead? And I was really surprised that the doctor said basically, well, no, that's not important. You know, you don't have lead paint in your house. If you're worried about the water, that's not an issue. And thinking about what you just said in terms of the officials telling people that it's it's just lead paint that's an issue and not lead water, I'm wondering if even doctors took that position. Oh, no, they were fooled totally. Yeah, no, the medical community believed the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the EPA, and they followed the line. And no one had any reason to believe that these folks would be misleading them or giving them false advice. So it's one of the worst betrayals, I think, of the public trust by people in positions of authority in U.S. history. Well, since we're talking about D.C., what happened after those congressional hearings and when it was all shown that there was harm? Was there any relief to any of these families, particularly this family that you're talking about that found out their their child was harmed and that one child even has to be hospitalized? 
Right. Well, in that case, the family broke up, and I've been trying to locate that child for some time, and no one knows. The last they heard, he, he was going to Chicago. There were five um, children whose parents fought for their day in court, and it was just two years ago that those cases were settled. So realize by the time, from the initial exposure to the time those very, very few cases got their day in court, I mean, some of these kids had, had already graduated high school. You know? Exactly. I mean, that's how slow the wheels of justice turn when government agencies have their fingers on the scale and are have a six-year delay from the time that exposures occurred to the time that harm re was realized. And of course, then you're suing yourself. You're suing the government. Good luck with that. So out of the thousands and thousands of children, I mean, if you prorated the harm done in D.C. And, and, and got the kids in D.C. the same money that kids in Flint got, you'd be talking $10, $15 billion. But in the end, you know, I think there were just five kids who got almost got their day in court and was settled out of court. And that's that's it. That's it ended with a whimper. Well, just kind of getting back to the mom question, because you may not be drinking the water, but the way I understand it in Flint, they're also worried about the kids bathing in the water. Bathing exposure route is really not a concern unless you okay. have, in one case in Flint, a family had truly hazardous waste levels of lead, in which case even a sip of water incidentally in bathing in that case could have caused some problems. But Generally, the lead does not, you can't breathe it in the shower. It doesn't go through your skin. It's only the water used for cooking or drinking. And then right. that was the case in D.C. too. Some children weren't drinking the water, but their moms were cooking vegetables in it or, and or, you know, pasta. And that, that was a route of exposure. Okay. So we're going to take a break right now. On that note, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm in conversation with Professor Mark Edwards, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Virginia Tech University. And we're talking about lead in the water in D.C. and in Flint, Michigan. And we'll be right back. This the new world water and every drop counts. You can laugh and take it as a joke if you want to, but it don't rain a full week some summers. And it's about to get real wild in the half. You be buying every yard to take Heads is acting wild, sipping boom, pumping dank uh, Competing with the next man for higher playing rank right. So I ain't got time, try to be Big Hank F*** a bank, I need a 20-year water tank Cause while these knuckleheads is out here sweating they good Sun is sitting in the treetops, burning the woods And if the flame from the blaze get higher and higher They say, don't drink the water, we need it for the fire New York is drinking that new world And all of California is drinking that new world Way up north and down south is drinking that new world Used to have minerals and zinc in that new world Now they say it got lead Thinking that Fluorocarbons and monoxide Push the water table lopsided Used to be free Now of course you will feed Cause all things Will they know that they roll Across the sea Man you gotta cook with it Baby clean with it When it's hot Summertime you fiend for it You gotta put it in the iron You steaming with That's what they dress wounds And treat diseases with The rich and poor Black and white got need for it this is On the Ground OnTheGroundShow.org Voices of Resistance From the Nation's Capital I'm Esther Ivarum and I'm in conversation with Mark Edwards, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Virginia Tech University. And we're talking about lead in the water in D.C. and in Flint, Michigan. So, Professor, in the last segment, we were talking about D.C. and what happened here in terms of the lead crisis in the early part of this century. How were you brought into D.C.'s crisis and how did you get wind of it? I was brought in in late 2002, early 2003 by the EPA to solve the lead and water problem. 
it's a long story, but I was soon unhired by the EPA at that time. So that was it. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, we should say unhired after your findings contradicted what they wanted to say. To some extent, the data weren't adding up, and there was obviously a difference of opinion about how to proceed, and they decided they wanted to go ahead without me. Okay. So, fast forward to more recent years uh, in Flint, Michigan. A lot of us kind of know the story. Flint, Michigan, the city manager switched their water from the Detroit water system, which had been serving the city, I, I assume, for decades, and switched it to the highly corrosive and polluted Flint River. And then, you know, all hell breaks loose. They forgot to follow federal corrosion control law and put a chemical in that would have kept the lead on the pipes and out of the water. What year is this? Well, it was April 2014, and Flint residents very quickly realized something was wrong, and they complained and complained, and everyone ignored them. And eventually, again, it was a mom that figured out that one of her twin boys had been lead poisoned from water, and her name is Leanne Walters, and she reached out to Miguel Del Toro at EPA, who's a great employee there, knows more about the lead and copper than probably anyone in the country, and the two of them worked on this for quite some time, and eventually they reached out to us to sample her water in early 2015, and when we did, we found hazardous waste levels of lead. And so at that point, you know, the three of us and other residents in ACLU Michigan started working on this and trying to get EPA to do their job, get the state to do their job, to follow federal law, and eventually it became clear they didn't want to do their job. So at that point, we had a fight on our hands, and so we formed this, you know, large coalition led by Flint residents and Our team at Virginia Tech played a role, as did many others, to expose the Flint water crisis and expose this environmental crime, this environmental injustice that's now recognized as such the world over. And how did the experience that you had here in D.C. basically kind of prepare you for Flint? Well, I learned the hard way in D.C. that you can't reason with unreasonable people. And so in Flint, we we never tried. Once we realized the EPA and the state were not going to do their job, we kind of went to war. And within kind of six weeks after this group declared war and exposed this high lead throughout the city and we had the help of the local medical community showed in real time that kids had elevated lead in their blood. It was just six weeks before the state admitted there was a big problem. And to the credit of the governor, he apologized for what happened, and he brought in the critics, including myself and others, to help fix the problem. And so we've been working on the disaster recovery since about January of 2016, and that's brought us to the present day. But FEMA, EPA, everyone has been working to try to, to fix the situation in Flint since, since the declaration of a federal emergency by President Obama. So let's get to that a a little later, but I want to kind of just drill down, just go back and take us back to when you first realized what was happening in Flint. And I know you met with the mother and tested her water in particular. So, so just describe for us what that was like and like the moment of realization when you saw what was in front of you. Well, we were preparing for the day because 
Again, if you don't learn from your mistakes, you're going to repeat them. And all the perpetrators of the crime in D.C. kept their jobs. And unfortunately, the agencies, frankly, learn, you know, nothing but they can get away with anything. <laughs> and they just got better at trying to cover these problems up, I mean, to oversimplify it. So, you know, in the aftermath of Flint, we learned Flint was not unique. Dozens of cities had high uh, lead and were cheating on their lead and copper roll monitoring. And thousands of cities and towns had lead above the EPA action level. So... History has vindicated our position that, you know, this was an environmental crime, frankly. Federal law was not being followed all around the country, but Flint was the battle that exposed that, and we did have a battle plan that we'd been thinking through. Like, if we had to fight the D.C. battle, how could we actually do it to get people protected um, from the high lead and water first, and then secondly, perhaps get them some funding to help them with their special health and educational needs. And all those things ultimately happened in Flint due to this, again, critical mass of moral courage, all these groups who stood up and helped Flint residents save their own day. Can you share with us your reaction or like what where you were and what you were doing when you realized how bad it was in Flint? Well, you know, our battle plan was first and foremost, we started a web page to advertise what we thought was an exposed an environmental crime. Secondly, we started collaborating with Flint residents to test their water and to do the job that the state and federal agencies would not do, which ultimately did prove that contrary to the official word, the water was not safe. It was very very clearly too high. We also did Freedom of Information Act requests and, you know, posted the results on our website. And that enabled the fourth estate, the reporters, to really take the story and run with it. And that's a problem we're facing in society today is we don't really have as many investigative reporters nowadays. So to some extent, we enabled them. And, you know, the results sort of speak for themselves. I mean, within six, eight weeks of when we got started, uh, the government had admitted a problem. They switched water sources. People were given bottled water and filters. And to date, $600 million has flowed into Flint. And, you know, this is, this is unprecedented amounts of relief. And it just kind of shows when you expose an environmental injustice, people from both sides of the aisle step up and people give money to help. Well, I guess there are a lot of people in some communities now who would beg to differ. They're still looking for relief places in West, West Virginia and everything. That's true, and that's because their injustices haven't been completely exposed, and we've got yeah. to work on that. What I wanted to ask you, though, is it seems like the Flint officials went out of their way to even do testing that wasn't really proper in the sense that they purposely tested areas or homes in a newer part of the city where the lead levels would not show a problem, whereas the federal regulations say you're supposed to test homes that may be at high risk. They use the residents to cheat. I mean, that's what makes this so horrible is that the lead and copper rule requires that you sample the highest risk homes, the homes with lead pipe, to find problems when they exist. And you give the bottles to the homeowners, and then the homeowners give it back to the state, and the state says, look, we did this nice citizen science project, and we discovered your water safe. And Unfortunately, what was happening was they were the state was falsely claiming that every single place they sampled had a lead pipe, when in fact they they only had like five to seven percent of the homes had lead pipe, and that's not enough to meet the legal requirements of the law. 
you have to have at least 50% of your homes with lead pipe. And they were claiming it was 100% and that was just false. And so that's part of what makes this betrayal so horrible. Not only were they not following federal law, but they were using the residents in a science experiment to claim the water was safe when it wasn't. And that, in fact, happened in D.C. too. And it's happening all around the country, even as we speak. I know that eventually what had to happen is that the ACLU became basically the investigative arm there. So it wasn't like a traditional fourth estate that basically came through in the end in terms of pursuing the story or picking it up at first. Well, that's because they trusted the agencies. And that's, you know, that's what makes this such a betrayal. I mean, no one ever expected the environmental policemen to become environmental criminals. So for months and months, Flint residents were complaining and uh, the state and the EPA were saying the water's safe. And who's the reporter to claim that the policemen are lying, you know? And so that just kind of shows how how fundamentally faith in our institutions, all institutions in America, has been shaken. I mean, in the aftermath of Flint, like... People all around the country don't trust their water anymore. They're switching to bottled water or filters. And this loss of trust, modern society works on trust. If you can't trust the EPA, if you can't trust the environmental policemen, we have anarchy, and we're on the verge of that right now. So, Yeah, so having been through this experience in D.C. with officials, paid officials, people paid with our tax dollars, lying, and then the same thing happening in Flint, What do you think that's all about? Is it just protecting your own personal jobs? Has the personal job become more important than the, I guess, the duty to protect the public? Absolutely. It's a misplaced loyalty. When I speak on this around the country, what I acknowledge is that the people who were loyal to humankind and the truth in D.C., there were five whistleblowers who lost their job. They were fired for doing their job trying to protect the public. And in the meantime, all the people who perpetrated this crime kept their job and actually got rewarded for what happened in D.C. It's it's just stunning. And didn't the same thing happen in Flint? Didn't the same thing happen to the EPA official? No, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, well, the EPA official had to resign. So that's a big deal in government. I mean, but, you know, they, they kept her pension and whatever. No, I mean, the initial person who was helping you. Yeah, that's right. He got he was a whistleblower, and he was. And what's his name? Let's say his name. So we Miguel Del Toro, an amazing right. EPA. Just like most federal government employees, most EPA employees are amazing. But you know, if you work in this kind of corrupt culture that rewards loyalty to the institution before they reward loyalty to the truth and humankind, this is what happens. And that's the problem with our government institutions right now. First and foremost, they're loyal to the institutions before they're loyal to their mission statement or the public. And that's all it takes to create a corrupt agency. They're going to look out for their interests, whatever they think they are on that day. And if a whole city gets damaged and kids get lead poisoned and people die from Legionella, I mean, that's, that's just tough. And usually they don't get caught, but in Flint they did. That's another thing that you just mentioned, because a lot of people don't remember that what several people died from Legionnaire's disease in Flint, and and that was related to the lead water also. Well, so, it wasn't related to lead and water. It was the same problem, no corrosion control, failure to follow federal law, and it caused these bacteria to grow that you breathe in your shower in Flint, and there, there, were, there were deaths that we think were due to that, 12 okay. deaths. Wow. And there's 15 uh, indictments of civil servants right now, and that those trials are going on as we speak. Okay, so 
we're, we're going to pick that up right after the break. We'll be right back. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Averam, and i'm in conversation with mark edwards professor of civil and environmental engineering at virginia tech university and before the break we were talking about indictments uh to civil servants uh, talk about that uh where they're happening and then other we'll, we'll, then we'll talk about other parts of the country that are being impacted by this yeah, this almost never happens, but because of the, you know, the tragedy, I mean, there's a lot of public outrage and so there are there are 15 indictments. Personally, I think about 3 or 4 of these are the real bad actors who actually told the lies. Um other people believe the lies and I guess I don't view guilt the same and certainly there were politicians kind of uh, swept up in this too because the mayor Democratic mayor of Flint was voted out of office, and in my opinion, he was one of the people who believed the lies. He wasn't necessarily creating them or telling them himself, and likewise the governor. And You know, what happened in Flint is, is so bad, people think it must be politics that caused it, and, you know, this is, to some extent, not accurate. I mean, it was the same thing that happened in Washington, D.C., and it was caused by engineers and scientists who were unworthy of the public trust, and people can't wrap their heads around that. And again, they're working at these agencies where the environmental policemen, and they have no profit motive to do what they did. Who, who are some of the, the bad actors, the people who you think told the lies? In Flint. Well, I wouldn't want to mention any names because this is a subject of current uh, trial, but okay. you know, there were there were three or four people who really did work overtime to not do their jobs, to mislead other people. And if you read the emails that are on our website, you can form your own opinions. You can see some people were reaching out, asking the right questions, and getting lied to, and then repeating those lies. So I know it does take two to, to lie. It takes one person to tell the lie and another person to believe it. It, but I'm of the persuasion that the person telling the lie that originating is, is by far the more guilty party. And so even though the issues here in D.C. are somewhat ongoing in the sense that, you know, you have a whole population of people who never really received justice. And you also have people in Flint who have some remedy. But, you know, I don't know if you can remedy, you know, I don't know if you can remedy what harm has been done to a child in that way. Let's talk about other places in the country and other places that you might want to mention that are in danger and aren't receiving the type of attention that Flint received. 
this problem has been occurring all around the country. In the aftermath of Flint, the Guardian did an expose that showed 33 of our largest cities were not following the protocols to find high lead in water when it was present. USA Today did a study that showed there were 5,000 cities that were, even with the failure to monitor properly, still were over the EPA action level. And so, you know, what we've learned is we've really got two Americas. We've Basically, our paradigm is that you get the water you can afford. And if you can't afford safe water, uh, a lot of cities and towns that are too poor will simply tell their residents that the water's safe when it's not. And I feel that this is highly unethical that, yeah, I mean, if we're going to have this idea that, you know, you get the water you can afford, let's at least be honest about it and tell people they need to protect themselves in their home by buying filters or bottled or boiling their water like a third world country, uh, rather than pretending we're a first world country when we're not. Wow, that is profound and scary. So in addition to lead in the water, I mean, just all over the world, there's it's agreed that the world is in a water crisis and that future conflicts, you know, or even current conflicts are being caused by the battle over water and water resources. I was always struck by the fact that I think just 50 miles from Flint, the Nestle Corporation is allowed to pump, I don't know, I want to say tens of thousands of gallons, millions of gallons of water for our, for pennies and sell it to us. But the residents of Flint, Michigan, aren't having clean water or, and have to have bottled water. <laughs> so there, there's other all kinds of issues around that. Is that being addressed in Michigan, as far as you know, in terms of fighting against corporate control of freshwater resources? Well, you know, those are pretty complicated issues because you've got a business there and they're, you know, producing taxes and they're harvesting water from the ground. And, you know, I, you know that's a local political societal issue. And it's the same thing with any, any business you have nowadays. People go out and they give them tax breaks and incentives to set up in their town. So there's jobs and taxes associated with that. But, you know, the issue with Flint is it's very stark. Both Flint and Washington, D.C. were caused by breaking existing law. I mean, these were mm-hmm. crimes. And so, yeah, we've got all kinds of problems in society. You know, maybe maybe the, the issue with bottled water in Michigan is one of them, but uh, it doesn't come close to, to telling people their water is safe when it's not. Yeah. Well, I guess I want to, in some instances, we have an issue of corporate pollution, right? And I'm wondering how that can fit into any type of environmental justice fight that is is not just in many cases lead in the water from old lead pipes, but you have you have corporate dumping in terms of other types of pollutants in the water. I mean, some people say, well, how did the Flint water river get so polluted? Right. And it was because you have corporations like GM, I think, polluting the water and they never really had to clean it up. There weren't necessarily types of regulations in place so that any effluent going into the water had to be cleaned. When these pollution events occurred, it was legal to just dump dump the pollution into the river. Right. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the legacy we're dealing with. I mean, environmental injustice, corporate pollution. That's kind of the game that we've gotten pretty good at playing. I mean, if you look back, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, people polluted, folks died, 
all the time. And with the environmental movement, you know, we've made dramatic changes. We have an EPA. We have regulations now. They're not perfect. We've generally... Then they're under attack and being... Roll yeah, back. Generally, well, that's true, but in general, we've made it in the interest of industry to be ethical, and when they're caught, it, it is a crime, and we make them pay, such as, you know, British Petroleum in the Gulf of Mexico paid tens, you know, $50 billion to clean up that mess. So that's kind of the more traditional battle that we have, and we will always have, because we've realized, you know, corporations do things that, that's in their interest, and you've got to make it in their business interest to be ethical, and to some extent, we've accomplished it. You're never win that battle completely what we're looking at here though is something brand new which is betrayal of the public trust by you know the environmental policemen and we don't even have a plan for that because no one ever thought that would happen why would government agencies uh, betray the public trust when there's no profit motive to do it well it's because their loyalty is misplaced they've become loyal to their institution before loyalty to serving the public and we need to get a check and balance on that because that's something we've never seen before. So if people want to follow what you're doing, uh, I think you mentioned a website earlier in the show. Where can people go? Um, first off, all our Flint work is, is on flintwaterstudy.org. Okay. And we have a new website where it's called uswaterstudy.org where we're expanding our approach to Flint to all of the United States. And you can follow our work with many, many other communities on uswaterstudy.org. You know, speaking of other communities, I read uh, where, what, a small town in South Carolina didn't want you to come, or the mayor didn't want you to come and test their water for their people. What's that about? Well, it's the same thing. You have these towns that are in an impossible situation where they cannot afford, in many cases, to follow federal law. And so when someone from outside comes in and starts testing the water, they get very, very fearful that you're going to discover something because if you do, they're wondering how they're going to pay for it. And so this really illustrates the crux of the problem. And you can't blame these small communities because they do not have money to produce water that's meeting federal law. And so uh, our approach is to try to expose this so that at least people are told their water is not safe so they can protect themselves. Because we feel the worst of all worlds is when people are being told their water is safe when it's not. If how we want to roll as a country, if we want to be all third world about it, and have have rural communities and, and poor inner cities where people are not getting water that meets federal safety standards, uh, I, I feel at a minimum we have to be honest about it and tell people. And so we're going to keep doing this work until we either tell people that their water is not safe when it's not safe, or we're going to find a way to get state and federal monies to help these uh, small communities, these poor communities, enjoy the same basic level of civilization that the rest of us take for granted. So in, the, in that case, though, can't you test the residents individually, even if the government tries to keep you out? We did that. We did find problems, but there's some problems you have to test at the well. And unfortunately, the wells are behind a locked fence, and the mayor controls access to the key. And so I can't get in there. And he, one of the odd things was he told us four times we could test. So we got ready to go, and we went there, and then we couldn't test. And then he said we could, and then we couldn't. And 
he just he just won't let us test the water and why this is i mean it just looks shady you know like because we all we want to think we live in a society that's open and transparent and about truth you know especially if it involves people's health so it just it looks bad if you're a public official and you say don't test my water it doesn't just look bad, it is bad. And again, it's hiding the fact that, that these communities are put in an impossible situation where literally if your town does not have enough money to meet federal law, what do you do about it? Yeah, but that's the last question I had, though. I mean, should this be the responsibility of little towns? If it's a federal law, why don't we have the ability in this country where, you know, we want to brag that we're the, you know, the most powerful, the most wealthy, the this, the that. Shouldn't it be a federal responsibility to supply clean drinking water throughout the country or or to give the resources so that states and localities can meet those federal guidelines? That's not currently our paradigm, but I would argue that's where we have to head. Otherwise, we just have to tell people that live in those towns, I'm sorry, you're not, you're not subject to the same federal protections as the rest of us. You are living in a third world country situation where you have to take steps to protect yourself and your family in your home. So, but right now, no, we don't have any mechanism short of a crisis like Flint where state or federal money can go to help these communities meet the federal law. But is it is it true that people of color and low income communities are more prone to have either the either the aging lead pipes or be in rural areas where the the wells and the plumbing is suspect? Question this this disproportionately affects uh, people of color. Um, poor people, everything from you're more likely to have a lead pipe connecting your house to the city to the fact that um, many um, poor women are under stress and they can't breastfeed as much. And so oftentimes they're mixing up formula from contaminated tap water. And this is off the charts, the worst risk factor. Breastfeeding protects your developing infant from high lead in water because your body tends to filter you know that and protect the child whereas you, you can just imagine if, if you're mixing up infant formula and, and these little tiny bodies are drinking a liter of that to, a day wow. so I to get that kind of exposure we'd have to drink like five gallons of water a day to get the same burden on our body so all of these things make this an environmental justice issue Okay. Well, uh, I, I read some accounts, you know, preparing for this, that some of these towns obviously consider you a troublemaker, but, you know, to many others, you're a hero. And I think that I saw that you won a MacArthur Genius Award. So, so you're, you're a hero in our book. Well, and a famous person once said that during times of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And if that makes me a troublemaker, so be it. All right. Well, well, we we like to think that we're we're troublemakers here too. So we'll we'll be in good company with you. All right. I've been speaking with Mark Edwards, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Virginia Tech University. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're on the ground with Michelle Roberts and members of the Havasupai Tribe and Grand Canyon Trust who are here in Washington, D.C., united to resist potential uranium mining in Arizona at the bottom of the canyon 
Letters were gathered to protect their beloved Havasupai Falls and all other water bodies along the base of the Grand Canyon. The Havasupai tribe are known as people of the blue-green waters. They have lived at the bottom of the Grand Canyon for centuries. Today, uranium mining on the canyon's rim is putting the tribe's drinking water and its very way of life at risk. To the Havasupai, water is very important because Havasupai means people of the blue green water. We emulate the water that flows in our canyon. The Supai people, we live in a very remote canyon of the Grand Canyon. And we have about approximately 150 families that live down there. We're one of the smallest tribes in Arizona. You know, we're basically fighting for our existence and our lifestyle. Youth and other members of the delegation traveled here to Washington, D.C. to deliver the letters of opposition to President Trump. We will keep you up to date on what's happening there at the base of the Grand Canyon. But until that time, you can check out the website for the Grand Canyon Trust Uranium Campaign Chronicle, and they will keep you updated. You're on the ground with Michelle Roberts. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Professor Mark Edwards. Also, thanks to Chantel James and Michelle Roberts for their reporting and production assistance. The music we played this hour included Seasons by Mozzie, Sajava, and Reason on the Black Panther movie soundtrack. New World Water by Yasin Bey, formerly Most Deaf, and What Rough Beast by Burt Sugar, the Orchestra Chamber. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. We just passed 500 likes on our Facebook page. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We could get more you can still like us and we can get more likes and also subscribe to our podcast on itunes i'm esther Rivera. thanks for tuning in keep raising your voice